This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. On today's future award-winning Moranalytics podcast, episode 173, I'm going to be joined by Bruce Nolan, co-host of The Nick and Nolan Show. Part of the Buffalo Rumblings Podcast Network. Their show drops every Wednesday. Today, we're talking tons of Buffalo Bills. What a fun season it continues to be. Buffalo is 8-3. Best record after 11 games in 23 years. So lots of positive things to talk about today, including Josh Allen. And I'll tell you what, his continued development is a lot of fun to watch. Bruce and I are going to pretty much deep dive into it today. And I'm not talking about his record. I'm not talking about the deep throw. I'm not talking about his stats. I really, truly do not care about his stats whatsoever. Bruce and I are going to talk about the little things that we're starting to see from Josh Allen that we barely saw any of, if anything at all, earlier in the year and especially last year as a rookie. These are the things that are making Josh Allen become a quote-unquote good quarterback. We'll hit on some of that. We're also going to talk about Devin Singletary, a rookie running back who's starting to become a star right in front of our very eyes. I'll tell you, with the power of hindsight, Brandon Bean, what a smart move he did getting rid of Shady before the regular season. And I'm not even trying to throw shade at Shady, pun intended there. I'm talking about the concept of Frank Gore being the featured back and more importantly, a mentor for this kid. And Devin Singletary is slowly, I mean, he missed time with an injury, but since he's been back, they have eased him into a role, and you can see it over the last couple games now. He's becoming the featured back. He's becoming the star. Frank Gore, the perfect complimentary piece to him. Devin Singletary is starting to look very good. Well done by Brandon Bean. We'll have a discussion about that. Of course, we'll talk about the defense. We'll talk about Dallas coming up on a short week on Thanksgiving Day. A tough schedule. Lots of stuff to get to. Plenty of other Buffalo Bills and non-Buffalo Bills stuff as well. My man, Bruce Nolan. I'll have them on in just a minute. Before I get to that, though, I want to let you know today's show is being supported by our friends at 26 Shirts. At 26 Shirts, a different Buffalo-themed design is sold every two weeks. And then presto, that shirt vanishes in the thin air. It's gone. You got to get it while it's on sale. Every time that they sell a shirt, they make a donation to either a local family in need or to a worthy charity. Every shirt has its own cause. Since 2013, their designs have managed to raise and donate over $650,000, 650K, and literally growing every day. I just can't get over that number. It's incredible. Del Reed, his crew, they do such an amazing job there. Awesome to see. And here's the other thing too. Folks, when you buy this shirt, I mean, it feels good to make a donation. You're helping somebody in need, but you're also getting something really good back because these shirts look great. They're cool. They're sporty. They're comfortable. I love wearing these shirts. Hopefully you are too. Head on over to 26shirts.com. See what causes you this week. And on that note, let's do it. 
If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, episode 173, Victory Tuesday, I suppose. My guest today is co-host of the Nick and Nolan Show, part of the Buffalo Rumblings Podcast Network. One of my favorite listens in the podcasting universe, my man, Bruce Nolan, who, by the way, not too long ago, I had both Bruce and Nick on the podcast and through no fault of his own, entirely my fault, Bruce's audio kind of sounded like crap. Not the case today, though. What's up, Bruce? How you doing? Patrick, your sins have been forgiven by the audio gods, my friend. <laughs> Everything is fine. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I felt bad because you're actually one of those guys out there that have a little bit jealous of, to be honest with you, man. You, I got Eric Turner from Cover One, my buddy Jeff Boyd from the 716 Sports Podcast. He does this with me from time to time. You guys got that broadcasty sound, and I had you on, and Nick sounded real good because he was on the Skype, and I had you on a third line on a brand new piece of gear that I had never really used before, and I kind of screwed it up and made you sound like shit, so... <laughs> my bad, man. I do apologize. Well, we'll just go ahead and blame it on you. We'll just go ahead and say it was your fault that I sounded like shit and by no fault of my own. But maybe, 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 and this is just an idea. Maybe I sounded so bad that people didn't listen to what I was saying, which is actually a good thing. <laughs> I guess so. If you put it that way, man. So you guys got your show and we're going to obviously talk tons of Buffalo Bills in just a few minutes. You guys got your show. It drops every Wednesday without question. One of my favorite podcasts, and I have a lot of shows in my rotation, and I try to get to as many of them as I can. But to be honest with you, man, some of them I kind of turn on, I listen for a few, see what's going on, and then I move on to the next one. But you guys have become like legit must-listen Buffalo Bills talk every Wednesday. I really look forward, and I'm not just saying it because you're on the podcast today. I've said this before on several occasions on this show, man. That's one of the shows that I really enjoy getting up on Wednesday morning. I take my kid to school. I, I put it on through Bluetooth on my car and sometimes I end up sitting in my car going there and back. I'm still got 20 minutes left in the show. I'll sit in my car for 20 minutes at the parking lot and make sure that I catch the rest of it, man. It's really well done. And you guys seem like, it seems like it's fun. And I know that might sound corny to say, but I, I feel like, you know, from having my own show and working with a lot of other people, I think you can kind of tell when two people work together and they enjoy doing it. I get the sense that you and Nick, you guys enjoy doing it. Am I right? Yeah, we really do. We enjoy doing it. Nick and I are friends and we were friends before the podcast. And that helps, I think, sure. not being put together specifically for the purpose of that. But in addition, there's there's something about taking the responsibility to the listener seriously, but not taking yourself seriously. Yeah. So I want to put in the effort. And I want to do the work. I want to rewatch the game. And I want to take my notes. And I want to watch the All-22. And I want to diagnose a coverage that I don't recognize. Cover 2 invert is something that's happening a lot this year that I, I didn't necessarily recognize the first time I saw it. And so you want to do those things. And you want to make sure that you're prepared. But that doesn't mean that that effort that I put in means that I should take myself super seriously because I'm doing it not so that you'll take me seriously. I'm doing it because I have an obligation to put a good product out and I want to speak intelligently on it, but we're still talking about a bunch of men running around in outfits with a ball. I mean, really, that's what we're doing. Yeah. So let's not take it too seriously. I understand we're emotionally invested in that's great, but this is a game. It's supposed to be fun. 
And so th- th- that helps. I think the other thing that helps is that Nick and I are not overly ambitious people. You know, we're not out here. I had a discussion with another fellow podcaster of mine about this the other day. We're not out here in a famine mentality where we're out to compete with other people for their podcast listeners. This is not, you know, I, we're not trying to audition for ESPN. We're having fun because we love to do this. This is not a job. This is a monetization of a hobby. And that separation, I think, is important because it allows you to put the work into it because you love to do it, but not put the work into it because you desperately want to be taken seriously. Now, do you ever feel sometimes, you know, the podcast, you said it, it's fun, but does it ever feel like a grind a little bit? I mean, even just you you guys get together and you do a show once a week, which is probably a little bit easier than if you did it multiple times per week. But even having said that, as fun as it is and as much as you enjoy watching the bills and breaking down games and things like that. Does it ever get to a point where some days, at least whatever night that you guys get together and you tape your show, it's like maybe you're just not quite feeling it that day and you got to motivate yourself a little bit more to really get going and put on a good show. Basically what I'm saying is that it's not always as easy as it seems, even if you are a big bills fan. It does feel like a grind when I don't have enough time. Like, That's the like time this. when it really frustrates me. Yeah, a little bit like this. <laughs> or, or like, for example, I just got done recording with Nick. Yeah. Okay, because we have scheduling issues. I literally just got home 15 minutes ago from recording from Nick. I fed the dogs. They're sitting here looking at me right now going, Dad, why are you on the phone? Why are you having this conversation? Why aren't you playing with us? And so <laughs> when you feel stressed for time, then it becomes a grind because you're like, listen, there's a specific way I like to do things. On, you know, on Sunday night, I like to rewatch for the first time and look at line play. And then on Monday night, I like to rewatch and look at, you know, running back play and things like that. And then Tuesday, I get to watch the all 22 and look at defensive back and wide receiver play, catch up on any notes I missed. If there's any holes that I missed during my broadcast, I can go back in. So there's a specific kind of procedure that you like to go about. And sometimes you don't get to do that because you're on a short week or shockingly enough, I have a real job. And sometimes that gets in the way. And so those are the times when it feels like a grind. But when I actually have my weeknights free to be able to put forth the effort that I want to put in, then it doesn't. So it sounds strange, but my real life really gets in the way of this pod. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, I really appreciate you coming on. We're taping this late Monday night, which is, again, for you, that's relatively early. Your style of podcasting is a little bit different than mine in the aspect that You do watch a game several times. You watch the film on Tuesdays and that helps you break down the game, which I mean, to be fair, that's a very big reason why I love listening to your show so much because you're going to give me details and deep dives that I'm not going to get in most other places. Certainly not going to get it on this podcast. That's for sure. So I really respect and appreciate what you do. And again, you coming on doing this on Monday, you haven't had a chance to watch the all 22. So if I take this with you on Wednesday, you might have some takes that are different than what you're going to have right now as we do this, which, you know, again, though, I kind of like that as well. So you're going to be a little bit on the fly. I didn't give you an outline. You don't really know exactly where we're going with this. You know, we're talking bills and going to mess around a little bit, but kind of like that. Keep you on your toes a little bit. So get you out of your comfort zone, Bruce Nolan. I'm not sure I do well outside my comfort zone, Pat. I don't think anyone who knows me for any length of time would say, you know what you should do with Bruce? You should make sure he's as ill-prepared as possible. (laughs) Things will go very well. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk some bills, all right? Eight and three, first time since 
1996. And I'll tell you what, I'm not one for too much preparation, but because, eh, frankly, because I was a little bit bored earlier today, I went and I looked up some things that happened that were going on the last time the Bills were 8-3, and and that was back in 1996. I don't know if you know any of this or not. Number one song in America at this time, No Diggity by Blackstreet. That was the number one song in America the last time the Bills were 8-3. and three. That's a while ago, man. That's a great song, though. I mean, let's be honest. You know, I, I know where I was. I was living in central Pennsylvania at the time, and I was jamming out in a 1983 Honda Civic <laughs> to Blackstreet No Diggity, and it was, it was pretty awesome. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> All right, number two song, I'm not going to go through a whole top 10, but I had to bring this up just because she's my girl. Celine Dion was number two. It's all coming back to me now. Number one movie in theaters, which I actually hated this movie, The Crow, City of Angels, not The Crow original. That was fantastic. They had the sequel, City of Angels. I don't know if you ever saw that. It kind of sucked. Not only have I not seen City of Angels, I have not seen the original Crow. Oh, bro. I know, I know. I'm a terrible person. But it's just not really historically a genre that I'm interested in. And then I married someone who would not appreciate the genre either. And so it's like, when am I going to find that time to watch The Crow? I just don't know. I've heard it's amazing and I'd like to see it, but I just don't know. I mean, it's so far down on the priority list for me. <laughs> All right. I got three more things for you that were going on at this time. The OJ Simpson trial that was going on. Obviously, very interesting time in American history. Major League Baseball interleague play was approved exactly that month, 23 years ago. I didn't realize that interleague play has been going on for as long as it has. I don't know how much of a baseball guy you are. And then here was the other thing. I I don't even know how I stumbled into this, but Doug Flutie, who of course would become Buffalo Bills quarterback just a couple years later, Doug Flutie, when the Bills were last eight and three, was actually leading the Toronto Argonauts to the CFL Grey Bowl. That's how long ago it was before the Bills had been eight and three. Yeah, I was, uh, I was unaware, I think, of Doug Flutie in the CFL at that point. I don't think I was even following the CFL. I did not know what was going on at that point. I mean, I was 11 and riding in the backseat of a Civic at the time. <laughs> so I was, not, I was not super in tune with the CFL at that time. I was super in tune with Black Street No Diggity. Now that I can, I can tell you, I was super in tune with that, but not the CFL so much. When it comes to Sunday, let's get into the game now. It was nice to see the Bills play an inferior opponent and make them look inferior as opposed to their equal, which has been the case a lot of times this year. The Bills have played a team that they're supposed to beat, and ultimately they did win the game, but it felt like they had to find a way to win at least some of those games anyway. Not the case in Denver against Denver at all. 20-3, to never felt like they were in any significant, legitimate danger of losing. Felt like more of a matter of time before... Denver, how long would they be able to hang around before eventually the Bills took over? And that's exactly what happened. Coming into this game, because I didn't get a chance to talk to you before the game, were you concerned? Because I'm going to be honest with you, I was extremely concerned. Even though they handled Miami relatively early last week, I had Benjamin Albright on the podcast on Friday. And after talking to him, he really had me convinced that Denver was much, much better than their 3-7 and seven record indicated. So I was really concerned. How are you? I would say I was moderately concerned. I wasn't as concerned as the Browns game, and I wasn't as confident as the Dolphins game. So I was somewhere in between. I knew that the Broncos had a tough defense. 
Yeah. But I also was very confident that Brandon Allen was not going to look like an all-star against the Bills. Now, I knew that he had enough of a screw-it mentality that he would potentially just kind of throw it up to Cortland Sutton. And I thought that there could be some big plays generated through Brandon Allen saying, listen, man, I'm 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 here on house money. I'm not even supposed to be here. You, you brought in Joe Flacco to be the guy. You drafted Drew Locke to be the next guy. I'm not the guy or the next guy. I'm the in-between guy. I'm the guy to get you to the guy. It's like good luck, Chuck. It's the guy you date before you meet the guy you're going to marry kind yeah, of thing. Right. And so Brandon Allen has kind of that, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to be here anyway, house money sort of vibe. And because of that, I was worried that Cortland Sutton might make some big plays just based on the fact that he was just going to throw it up to him. But my main concern was Cody Ford against Von Miller. And I was worried that Von Miller was going to wreck it. I expected us to win the game. I did not expect us to win the game by putting up 240 plus yards of rushing on a previously strong Denver defense. Yeah, top five defense against the run coming into the game held Minnesota to just 37 yards on the ground a week before. I want to get a couple of sore spots out of the way because this is going to be pretty much a positive conversation. I feel like this, man. If the Bills are eight and three, they've done everything that they're supposed to do in terms of handling business, and they look good, at least on Sunday, doing it. If you're sitting here, and I'm not saying me or you, just people in general, looking for things that can consistently nitpick, then I just feel like you don't want this team to be good because you just want things to bitch and moan about. But there were a couple things that did get on my nerves on Sunday. And the biggest thing, and I'm sure you'll probably agree with this, is the penalties. 12 penalties, 90 yards, and some of them were, or they could have been very hurtful. That Feliciano penalty, the holding penalty in there to goal line, that probably cost the Bills four points. At Oliver's personal foul, I mean, that was just a really stupid penalty. He made up for it later on, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes too. But just a lot of dumb penalties, and they they really shot themselves in the foot. And you say 12 penalties for 90 yards, if they were playing a team like, say, Dallas that they're going to be playing this week or Baltimore, you have those kind of penalties, you ain't going to win the game. You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Having a quarterback who can get you out of bad situations is a good thing that the bills have. Yeah. The bills have a player at the pivot who is Mitch Morrison. And, and he, you know, he went out with a hand injury and he knows what having a quarterback who can get you out of bad situations looks like he played with Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes can get you out of bad situations. You know, what's better than having a quarterback who can get you out of bad situations, not putting them in those situations <laughs> yeah. with really bad penalties. And so I agree with you, and I want to want to pull my hair out. Now, part of it's character trait. And what I mean by that is when you bring in people who are nasty, mauling-type offensive linemen, Cody Ford, John Feliciano, when you bring these people in, sometimes the penalties just kind of come with it because the NFL isn't like it used to be. You're not allowed to finish as an offensive lineman, the way that you used to. Nowadays, when someone sees a defensive lineman on the ground, they don't think, oh man, what a pancake back. They think, where's the holding flag? Yeah. That's the first thing they think. And so part of that is self-inflicted just based on the character of the offensive lineman they brought in. But we've got to figure out a way to do that. Cody Ford can absolutely stone you with his hands and his punch. But in college, you would see him grab somebody and just literally drive them into the, you know, into the Gatorade bucket. Like off the field, he'd just get his hands on you and that's just it. The play's over. He's going to take you for a ride. Well, they don't really like to get away with that 
in the NFL anymore. Pancake blocks really aren't much of a thing anymore. And so we got to learn to kind of curb some of that stuff and know when the play has gone by, you've done your job. It's time to stop. I got three things in like my sore spot section of my notes. That was one. Number two, dude, I've been waiting all season long for Robert Foster to start being a factor. And he was on Sunday. He took a nice end around, showed his speed. He ran 22 yards and then he caught that pass and turned it up field. He got 24 and came up lame and pulled his hamstring. As of right now, this taping, we don't quite know the extent how long he's going to be out with this injury. But that really sucks. That was the Robert Foster that I've been waiting for all year. I've been saying, all right, John Brown's got the speed. And obviously, we've learned now he could also be a possession receiver. You got Cole Beasley working the middle of the field real well. And Robert Foster's that guy who can get downfield and get you a big play. I've been waiting for this all year. He finally starts to show some traces. They show a little bit of confidence in him. They get him the ball. And then, bam, he gets hurt. That really sucks. I watched Robert Foster on the field yesterday. And I thought to myself something strange. I said... You know, John Brown has been into his career a little bit. He's no longer a, a young receiver by any means. He's a, he's a veteran. Right. I think Robert Foster might be faster than John Brown at this point. I watched him move on that end around, and I watched him move on that short pass he took down the sideline. I thought to myself, I'm not sure I've seen a Bills player move that fast this year. Yeah. I mean, he's got really serious wheels. And then he pulls up lame, and I'm like, well, I, I guess I'm not going to get a chance to confirm that theory later on. I'll have to watch the tape back. And so that's frustrating because coming into the year, some people thought, you know, hey, Robert well, Foster, he's emerging as the wide receiver one for this team. I was never quite on board with that. I always thought the good comp for Robert Foster was Devery Henderson. If you remember who that, you remember Devery Henderson? Oh, yeah. oh, he was yeah. a, deep, a deep threat for the Saints. And oh, yeah. he was a designated kind of wide receiver four who did a couple things really well and was specifically used as a tool to get those things done as far as spacing on offense. I always thought that could be Robert Foster's kind of job. And then he just didn't see the field. And then he started to see the field as a gunner. And I was like, okay, maybe he's earning his way back into the good graces of the coaching staff. We see some touches today. And we're like, okay, okay, this is it. This is the Robert Foster game. Oh, this is the Robert Foster hamstring game. Yeah. This is not, this is not the Robert Foster game. So that's, I don't want to say it's a sore spot seems too strong, but frustrating seems seems the right the right term i think it's frustrating for us i think having him be a non-factor in the offense that desperately needed playmakers i think that's been a sore spot all year okay what like what what did robert foster do to you did he say something mean about you sean like what happened and he's kind of in this weird aura of mystery around it all year and then we finally see it and then he gets hurt and we're like okay well now we're just frustrated and it's going to definitely put Duke Williams into a spot where he's going to have another opportunity to hopefully do something positive to help the team. The last thing, and admittedly here, I'm nitpicking a little bit. It certainly didn't hurt the Bills at all on Sunday, but it's happened at least a couple times this year. The clock management in the last two minutes of the first half, I just don't understand what they're doing. They're not trying to score, then they're trying to score, and then they're not trying to score again. Just the clock management, the, the, the play calls near the end of that first half, guys jumping False starts. It was just a very frustrating way to end the first half. The Bills were up 6-0. It felt like it should have been more even before that drive. They come away with nothing. Again, I think they were content to run the ball off, but on first down, Devin Singletary had a nice draw. I think he might have had 17, 18 yards a run. And then they kind of amped it up a little bit, got near midfield, and then just things kind of fell apart. And that's happened a couple times this year. What, what's your What's your 
I don't want to say your take because obviously that's annoying to watch, but what do you see? Are you seeing something out there that's like, why is this team so lousy in the last two minutes? You think it's on McDermott? Is it on Brian Dable? Is it on Josh Allen having trouble communicating to his guys? What do you think it is? Because this has happened a few times this year now. This is ultimately a McDermott thing. McDermott has never been an A-plus game day coach. Coaches have different strengths. There are some coaches that are really good play callers. There are some coaches that are quarterback whispers. Some coaches are defensive gurus. Some coaches are really good CEOs. You know, other coaches like Sean McDermott are good culture guys. They know how to balance the emotional well-being of a locker room and know how to handle personalities. Phil Jackson was like this. The greatness of Phil Jackson was not the triangle offense. The greatness of Phil Jackson was keeping players from killing each other. That was the greatness of Phil Jackson. Sean McDermott has a similar style. I'm not comparing him to the greatest basketball coach of all time. I'm just saying that the culture thing is real with McDermott. That's what he does. But as far as being a game day coach, he has markedly improved this year from where he was in 17. I mean, you've seen his fourth down aggressiveness go way up and we should be commending him for it. I feel like I'm, I'm taking crazy pills. I feel like nobody's talking about Sean McDermott's aggressiveness on fourth down and we should be, and that's great. And he's getting better. He, he hit the last two challenges that he challenged. He got, he got overturned and that's great. But the clock management thing has always been a problem with him. It's been a problem with him. It's been a problem with almost the entire Andy Reid tree. Matt Nagy has a little bit of it. Andy Reid's got it. I remember the Andy Reid Philadelphia years. My brother and uncle and cousins, they're all Eagles fans. And they would just scream up and down about Andy Reid's clock management skills. And they're right. Sean McDermott, unfortunately, inherited that from Andy. Let's take a quick break. Want to let you know today's show is supported by Paul Cellular. Today's lifestyle demand is the best in wireless. And with Pulse Cellular, you have the best options available. Switch to Pulse Cellular for unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data. Coast to coast with no contracts, no credit checks, and no overage fees. One line for $65 or four lines for just $45 each. That includes hotspot, Wi-Fi calling, and up to 50 gigs per line. And for all you travelers out there, Pulse has you covered in Canada and Mexico. Plus, text and data in over 210 countries worldwide, all with the best phones, or you can bring your own. That's pretty awesome. Get the best user experience on mobile at wholesaler.com. All right, Bruce, one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to have you on this podcast this week is because when it comes to Josh Allen, I feel like when, when it comes to your podcast, at least, so I want to be clear here, you're not a Josh Allen fan. You're not a Josh, Josh Allen hater. You're a Josh Allen analyst. That's what you do. You break him down very objectively, unbiased. I feel like if he's playing well, you say that. I feel like if he's not playing well, you're certainly not afraid to say that. But you do it in a matter where you're not necessarily just bashing the guy left and right like so many people do to Josh Allen when he's not playing particularly well. When it comes to Sunday, I really, I, I notice his progress. And it's so easy to say that when you're winning. And it's so easy to say that when the stats look pretty good. Like the week before in Miami, he accounted for four touchdowns. He's the AFC Offensive Player of the Week. And he had a good game. But that, to me, is not necessarily progress. That's Josh Allen having a good game against a really bad defense and a bad team. And I'm not trying to take anything away from Allen by saying that. But that's how I felt. This game on Sunday against Denver, I felt like he was making real progress because a lot of the little things 
that I'm starting to notice. And again, I'm sure you watch him deeper than I do. But like what I'm talking about is like the clock that's inside his head. It used to feel like it took forever for that clock to go off. It feels like it's going off much quicker now. He feels and he senses better anyway when the pressure's coming and he knows he can't escape. He's got to get rid of the ball. He threw a, a ball into the ankles of Dawson Knox on a bad screen. It was a screen call. He knew it wasn't going to work. He threw it at his ankles. I, I was like, Tom Brady does that shit. You know what I mean? He's throwing the ball away. He's he's scrambling earlier. He's not waiting to the last second. I mean, he still had some athletic plays that very few other quarterbacks can do. It just seems like to me, he felt clueless at times, at least during games, especially when other teams were blitzing him. I didn't see any of that against Denver Sunday. It's the little things I'm seeing in him, maybe mentally as much as physically, that makes me say that he's making legit progress. How do you feel about that? I agree with that. I, I don't think that you can make an argument that Josh Allen is not making progress that will hold any weight with me. I really don't. I don't think that there's anything you could you could start from a point that Josh Allen's not making any progress. He's the same guy he's always been. And then show me anything that would convince me at this point, because I don't think there's evidence of that. In fact, I think there's notable evidence to the contrary. When you watch a college quarterback and you're trying to determine translatable throws and translatable plays, you're looking for things that you say, okay, that's NFL level quarterbacking right there. Because we know that colleges, a lot of times statistics lie to you because the, the type of offense they're playing in the gap between high level college programs and low level college programs is so unbelievably wide sure. that the talent discrepancy causes a lot of issues and you think, okay, well, yes, you know, bubble screen, bubble screen, bubble screen, bubble screen. Great. Okay. This is great. None of that stuff matters. You look and you say, bam, okay, there's an NFL level throw. Okay. There's something you can check that box and go, yes, that guy can do that. Because at the NFL level, when you get there, one of the things that Nick and I talk about all the time is that defenses give you something every play. There is something there. That whole phrase, take what the defense gives you, right? It's not just coach talk. There are no defenses that are designed in the world to have no weaknesses. Everything that they're going to run gives you something. Now, you might not have the appropriate route called to be able to take advantage of the thing the defense is giving you. And then at that point, it becomes a player-on-player -player discussion. It becomes a, can you deal with a broken play? How well do you play outside of structure? Things like that. But every defense gives you something. Well, quarterbacking, just like seeing, okay, I want to check that box for a quarterback. Okay, I know he can do that. So I don't have to worry about a defense in the NFL giving me that and having me not be able to take advantage of it. That's one of the things you're looking at when you're scouting college quarterbacks. Well, when you get to the NFL, there's still that same thing. You're looking for high-level translatable traits. You're looking for, okay, can he recognize when he's in a bad play and get out of it? If not, then that's a problem. Can he recognize a coverage he's seen before that game and make the appropriate adjustment, either a sight adjustment or a leverage adjustment with a throw? Can he see these things? And so in the same way that you kind of evaluate that stuff with a college quarterback, you also evaluate it with a pro quarterback to see whether it translates to the next level, which is, of course, his franchise quarterback level. Like, is this guy the guy? And so what you're seeing from Josh Allen over the last couple of weeks is you're seeing him do these things. You're seeing him talk to smoke and say, Hey, um, listen, if they do a cover two again, okay, we're going to check to a spot concept 
And what we're going to do is we're going to have you run down the right sideline. Okay. I'm going to hold the middle safety. If it's cover one, I'm going to hold him long enough. If it's cover two, I just need him to not cheat on me. And I can hit you in that hole. And he sees it again. He does a side adjustment. John Brown goes, okay, here it comes. And they roll to cover two. Josh holds the middle, holds the safety, who is getting a little nosy. He hits a honey hole throw, goes for a touchdown against Miami. So this is elite level quarterbacking. The mental stuff, okay, I see what you did there. Number two, the connection with from the mental to the playbook. Okay, I know what you're in, and I know what can beat it. And then the third step is I have to be able to execute it. I have to be able to make the throw. So I have to be able to recognize what I'm in. I have to be able to recognize what they're in. And I have to be able to actually execute the throw. This is elite level quarterbacking we're seeing from Josh Allen. The play against the Broncos that went to Cole Beasley is another example of that sort of scenario. He looks over the middle. He wants to go to Dawson Knox. That's the first read. He looks at Dawson Knox. He realizes that Dawson Knox is basically bracketed. There's not there. But he knows that because Dawson Knox is covered, therefore Beasley's going to be open. So even though he's got somebody coming at him and he's staring down the barrel, he goes, I don't have to panic right now. I know that there's only 11 people on defense. I know sometimes quarterbacks like Sam Darnold can see ghosts and think there's 37 people on defense, (laughs) but there's not. There's only 11. And I know that the reason why Dawson Knox is covered is because Cole Beasley will be open. And if I can just get my eyes over to him, it will be there. And he can get out of trouble with his arm. He doesn't have to get out of trouble by running around like a chicken with his head cut off. He can get out of trouble by throwing his way out of trouble, which is something we did not see from Josh Allen last year. That is extremely encouraging. And if you don't see the progress, I've got nothing for you. I'll tell you, that touchdown pass to Beasley, he actually reminded me of Big Ben in a way. And I've been saying this for quite a while. And to be fair, he hasn't really played much like Big Ben, the good or the bad. But what I mean by that is he could have taken off running. He was looking to extend the play. He was staying in the pocket and he was willing to take that hit to deliver the ball. I feel like maybe even just a handful of weeks ago, he might have taken off running. He would not, if Knox was covered, like you said, that was his first read and the pressure was coming in. He might have started rolling towards the right and see if he can make something happen with his legs. And if not, he either throws it up for grabs or throws it into the stands. But I just love the way that he stood in the pocket. And then one other thing too that I really enjoyed it was the interception. Don't get me, I didn't enjoy the interception whatsoever. That was an absolutely horrible throw. It sailed oh, way, way high. And I think it was Justin Simmons who picked it off. That was his first interception, I think, in like 176 passes or something like that. But this is what I did like. It felt to me, watching him, that, hey, it's one play. I felt like it had zero effect on him. Definitely didn't have no effect on him physically. And it didn't look like, even on the bench, they, they um, zoomed in on him. It didn't look like he was too bothered by it mentally either. I mean, he was obviously pissed off that he do a bad pass, but I see in games like maybe that Cincinnati game early in the season, we do an interception. You could tell his body language. He looked at least momentarily defeated, did not see that at all with him on the sidelines on Sunday. I really like that. And I think that's just another form of non-statistical progress that I really like in this kid. And he's starting, you know, I'm going to say it, man. He's starting to win me over a little bit because I wasn't a big Josh Allen fan coming into this season and even early in the year, but things like that are starting to win me over big time with them. That stuff wins over his teammates too. And to a man, they'll tell you, 
how much that they appreciate Josh and how much they appreciate the fact that he's willing to go out there and play every game like it's the last game he's ever played. And there's some of that separation that comes between quarterbacks who are a little prima donna and the rest of their team. And Josh Allen, thankfully, has that. Now, to be fair, if you're really good, no one's going to care if you're a prima donna. Let's start with that because players want to win. So if Josh Allen is a yoga vegan who comes from an extremely affluent oil tycoon family and his name is Reginald Beckworth V. It's not going to matter if he can throw the ball, but it certainly doesn't hurt. Yeah, right. I hear you, man. One last thing too about Josh Allen, and maybe this is silly, but somebody presented this to me, actually. I want to get your take on this. Do you think that Brian Dable going into the press box maybe having a positive effect on Josh Allen? Maybe in other ways, but one way specifically, and this is a very big Josh Allen fan who pointed this out for me. Every time it seemed like Josh Allen would make a bad play, he'd go to the bench and Brian Dable would be like literally right in his face with, you know, the iPad, showing him stuff on film, not letting him breathe, basically. Whereas maybe in the press box, he's sitting there on when he comes off on the sidelines and on the bench that he has an opportunity to relax a little bit. He doesn't have his offensive coordinator directly in his face as soon as he comes off the field after he throws an interception or fumbles the ball or makes some kind of mistake. I mean, there's probably, I'm sure, other reasons why, too, it would probably affect more than that that would benefit Josh Allen, him being up there. But do you, obviously, I mean, it's kind of obvious that him being up there is helping his game so far right now. But do you buy into a reason like that? And maybe sometimes just not having a guy in your face when you come off the field, then maybe that helps, too. I really don't know because I don't think I know enough about the relationship between Josh Allen and Brian Dable to know if that's a positive or a negative. And I don't know Josh Allen emotionally well enough to know what he responds to as a quarterback. Some quarterbacks respond better to adrenaline and confrontation and getting fired up. Other quarterbacks are much more cool and they, they respond a lot worse to immediate in-your-face conflict because they need time to analyze and process. It's one of those things where I'm not sure if I was a quarterback, I'm not sure that I would respond horribly well to my offensive coordinator yelling in my face the second I walked off the field. Probably would not do me any strong suits. But I don't really know how Josh Allen works that way. So I don't know if I could really comment on it, but it certainly doesn't hurt to have him in the booth. I I prefer my coordinators in the booth just as a general rule because I think it's a more emotionally sterile environment for the coordinator to be able to call plays. And I also think they have a tendency to let things get away from them a little bit less. Sometimes I feel like they can remain a little more mentally organized. Uh, this is going to sound really strange, but they have lots of room for papers in front of them. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they don't have to worry about being on the sidelines and all these other conflicting sort of things that are distracting them from calling the best game they can, because really this is going to sound terrible, but I'd much rather you call it from a computer than call it from down there. Because I don't think the emotions of the game do the play calling any benefit. Yeah. So I don't, I think he just stays up in the booth until it proves that it's not a good idea. You mentioned the ground game earlier, 244 yards on the ground against Denver. That is definitely one thing I did not see coming. I thought the bills could have some, opportunities to have success through the air. They did a lot of it on the ground. Devin Singletary, 21 carries, 105 yards. Let us let me go here with this question, okay? I love Frank Gore. 
65 yards, of course, he passed Barry Sanders, becomes third all-time. I love Frank Gore. I think he's been the perfect player on this team to go ahead and get yourself a guy like Devin Singletary in the draft. And this is one area where I feel like, and I've talked about this on the podcast in the past, Brandon Bean deserves a hell of a lot of credit because I really, truly think that this was a plan all along. You go out, you get Frank Gore. You already had LaShawn McCoy. You go out and you get Gore on, literally on day one of free agency, even though you have LaShawn McCoy. And then on the, you can sign TJ Eldon as maybe he's some kind of insurance in case the draft doesn't go your way. But on the draft, you go out and you get a guy in the third round, Devin Singletary, a day two pick when you have Frank Gore and McCoy. I feel like he went into camp this summer saying, all right, if all three of these guys can stay healthy and Singletary shows me anything in Gore, like I said, can stay healthy, I'm going to get rid of Shady because Frank Gore is the perfect guy to begin the season as a quote-unquote featured back and will ease Devin Singletary into the lineup, which a lot of fans, including myself, weren't big fans of early in the year. And then, of course, he got hurt. But now you're starting to see the transition where Singletary is getting more and more of the workload while Frank Gore is serving as the change of pace guy, and most importantly, a mentor off the field. I mean, all this attention that was raining down on him after the game Sunday, after he breaks Barry Sanders' uh, milestone record there, he's deflected and he's talking about Devin Singletary. I just feel like this guy is a perfect mentor for Singletary. And again, kudos to Brandon Bean, because I, at least this is my personal opinion, I feel like this has been a plan that was in the making going back to day one of free agency that this is how they wanted to do it. They're going to get rid of Shady, have a rookie, and a guy like Frank Gore. What do you think? I think Bean deserves a lot of credit for the 2019 offseason in general. Yeah. I, I, I think that I was talking about this on Twitter not too long ago, but really, if you think about the teams in the league that had the best offseasons in 2019 from an acquisition standpoint, you got to put the Ravens, the 49ers, and the Bills right there. Because, you know, the Ravens really built their offense around Lamar Jackson, they're showing that strong suit now. The fact that they committed, they went all in on Lamar Jackson. They brought, they, you know, they gave Greg Roman the reins of the offense. They brought in the tight ends. They brought in Mark Ingram. They said, I know what we want to be. This is a good fit, and it's worked out great for them. The 49ers, they traded for D Ford. They signed Quan Alexander, who I know is hurt. But they... They brought in the people necessary to really fill that need. They drafted Nick Bosa at number two overall. The Niners were the worst turnover defense in the history of football last year. Yeah. Nobody forced less turnovers than the Niners. And now they have a fearsome defense that people are scared of, and it turned the whole thing around. But let's not forget about the Bills. The Bills remade their entire offense in one offseason. Aside from quarterback and left tackle, everybody else is new. Left guard's new, center's new, right guard's new, right tackle's new, tight ends are new, wide receivers are new, running backs are new. I mean, the fullback is a carryover if you want to consider him a starter, but that is it. And all of them are replacement level or above players. It's not like we, you know, sometimes people get, credit where they don't deserve it. It's like, oh, well, he drafted a starter. Well, yeah, he drafted a starter because the guy you had sucked and they had no choice. Right. He's not a starter because he earned it. He's a starter because your team is so bad that you had to roll out a six-round pick to start day one. That doesn't mean your your GM is good. That means your GM is well, ill-prepared. But Brandon Bean has managed to turn one of the worst offenses in the history of football 
last year. That's not being hyperbolic. For a while there, we were on pace to be the worst offense in the history of football. And only after we got some YOLO Josh at the end of 2018, where he's like, you know, screw it. I'm going to run for a touchdown. I'm going to throw it deep to Robert Foster. Until we got that version of Josh Allen in the back half of 2018, it was looking pretty bleak. And now we don't have a good offense by any means, but we're starting to sort of find our identity with 11 personnel, Isaiah McKenzie, John Brown, Cole Beasley, a tight end, and Devin Singletary in the back. And all of those things I just mentioned are Brandon Bean acquisitions. And Frank Gore handing the baton off to Devin Singletary, it's looking like not only did they have a plan, but it's looking like the plan was well executed. For a second straight week, I thought the Bills' offensive line played very well. Mitch Morris left in the first half with a right-hand injury. We still don't know quite the extent of that at this time. But he he left starting center. That could have been a lot of trouble, but it didn't turn out to be. You mentioned Cody Ford. Von Miller gave great praise to both Cody Ford and D.L. Dawkins after the game, who both had a good game at tackle. It kind of took turns because Von Miller did bounce around a little bit. They both pretty much shut him down. When it comes to Ford, do you think that perhaps um, the injury to Tyan Secchi, maybe that took a little bit of pressure off him feeling that, hey, you know what, if I go out here and I have a bad rep or a bad series, that I'm going to find myself out of the rotation for the next two or three times that, that we have the ball, and maybe he's able to calm down and relax a little bit because he doesn't have the threat of Tyan Secchi going in there, or is that just you know coincidence and it's more along the lines of, you know what, the kids had a couple more NFL starts now, He's getting used to the speed of the NFL, and he's just simply playing better. Well, more reps is always better than less reps. Sure. But the platooning strategy that the offensive line had back when they had a healthy tie in Secchi along with Cody Ford didn't seem to be based on whether or not Cody Ford screwed up. It wasn't like, hey, we're going to put you in there, and then when you screw up, we're going to pull you and put in this in Secchi. It was like, okay, this is your series. We're going to go with this series. Now Ty and Secchi's going to come in. You're going to come to the bench. You're going to talk to the offensive line coach about what you saw, how it went, what he saw while Ty and Secchi's in so that you can watch. So if this was a strange quarterback, you know, situation where if you throw a pick, you're going to get benched, I might be more inclined to see it that way, but it didn't seem like that was the method of which they were platooning previously. So I don't know if it had any effect this time. Here's what I know for the first time since we drafted him, actually, no, I take that back for the first time since I started watching his college tape, I saw Cody Ford on Sunday and thought, huh, maybe he could be a tackle. I'm not saying he is. And he didn't absolutely stonewall Von Miller. Von Miller beat him a couple times and it was fortunate the ball was already out by then or Josh Allen had scrambled, but he played an above average game that I would say is very encouraging. And for the first time, I thought, oh my goodness, how awesome would it be if I was wrong? Because I championed Cody Ford is a guard from the beginning. When we first drafted him, Bills fans jumped down my throat on Twitter because I said, I don't really like the pick all that much because I think he's a guard and we don't need a guard. We need a tackle. And I got a lot of uh, the whole, you know, well, you're so smart. Why aren't you a GM? You know, that's the, the standard go-to when you don't like somebody's opinion. But for the first time on Sunday, I saw him and thought, oh, great. How great would it be if I was wrong? Like, that'd be so great to not have to worry about the right tackle position going into next year. 
That would be amazing. So I'm encouraged by Cody Ford's play. Now he's got Demarcus Lawrence coming up on Thursday. So that's bigger challenge than Von Miller by quite a bit. So let's not, you know, get too far ahead of ourselves and say he's clearly the right tackle of the future, but it's a very encouraging step. Let's take a quick break. Want to let you know today's show is supported by Matt Cundell voiceovers. Matt Cundell started doing voice radio ads in the 1990s. As his career progressed, he began to branch out and do voice work for television, films, working with e-learning companies and voice solution groups. In 2015, Matt started working in voice full-time, and he has been absolutely killing it ever since. Matt's now the president of the Sound Off Media Company. If you need television, radio, online videos, podcasts, telephone, corporate narrations, you name it, Matt Cundell is your guy. I've used Matt's voice for stuff on multiple occasions, both with this podcast and on other projects. Many commercial clients as well. They've been happy every time, as have I. You definitely will as well. Go to mattcundell.ca for more information. Let's spend a few minutes flipping on the other side of the ball. I feel like this offense is coming on so much that it's easy to overlook the defense, which has been the strength of the team since week one of this season, actually going back to the day that Sean McDermott became head coach. And I listen, I got to start with Tredavious White because I thought he was spectacular on Sunday. Cortland Sutton is a very good receiver, and I was really concerned about him more than anyone else coming into this game. And my fears were unfounded in the end of the, at the end of the day, but it didn't start out that way. Fifth play of the game, Cortland Sutton beats Tredavious White on the right sideline and catches a 28-yard pass. I'm like, well, here we go. This is going to be a this is going to be a tough matchup all day. Well, guess what? 59 minutes later or whatever, 58 minutes later, Cortland Sutton still has one catch. Ended up having eight targets on the day. One catch. That was it. Tredavious White, who was on him pretty much the entire game too. It's not like it was a bunch of different coverages, a combination. That was pretty much straight up man-on-man. Trey White on Cortland Sutton all day. Shut him down. And then for good measure, he gets his fourth interception of the season as well. Look, I'm not a big, this guy needs to be in the Pro Bowl type of uh, type of guy on this podcast because I'm not, just not how I roll. But when it comes to them, if Tredavious White's not a Pro Bowl corner at this stage of his career in this season, I don't know what more he could possibly do to get to that status because I thought I thought he might have been the best player on the field on Sunday for either team. He's been the best player on the field quite a bit this season. And Tredavious White coming into this year, there were a couple things that we needed to see from him. The first was he got a little penalty happy last year. And that really hurt some of the stuff that that he was contributing because he was getting called for probably he would probably say our ticky tack fouls. And some of that stuff is based on just refs and based on how they call the game. But the other thing is we wanted more splash plays from Tredavious white. He has delivered both this year. He hasn't been penalized like he was last year and he's delivered game changing plays that help us get back into games. You know, there was a, a time when Denver was going down to try to take the lead on the bills. And we were sitting ourselves going, gosh, you know, our failure to score touchdowns in the red zone is going to come back to bite us here. And if they come down and score and go up seven to six, we're all going to collectively roll our eyes going another missed opportunity. We were dominating them the whole game. And now we're down by a point going in a half or something like that. But Tredavious white in cover three, decided to play the ball the way he was supposed to play the ball 
and get the pick and move on. And I know it looks easy when you look at it on the broadcast angle and you're like, oh, that's an easy play. But that's good, sound, technical defensive back play. That is running your assignment and not getting so sticky with your man that you forget what your assignment is, which is to cover the deep third. And knowing that you have help coming underneath and knowing that your responsibility runs deeper than just that one guy because could be a deep crosser coming behind you, things like that. So Tredavious White is the best player on this team. It's not particularly close, in my opinion. And this is the offseason coming up where we can sign him to significant money. I fully expect, endorse, and will be upset if, if we do not. Make Tredavious White the highest paid corner in the league this offseason. Another guy who's going to be up for some money in the offseason, not that kind of money, but a pretty good payday if he keeps playing the way he is, is Shaq Lawson. He had not one, he had two sacks on Sunday, nearly had a third. He almost took Brandon Allen's head off, like completely off his head in the first quarter. I already feel like he's been one of the more underrated run defenders in the league, but now he's up to five sacks too. And clearly, He's playing with a chip on his shoulder. I didn't know this until after the game. I saw it on Twitter Monday. I guess it was Connor McGovern. Must have said something to the Denver media that he had never even heard of Shaq Lawson. And I don't know if people out there listening, I'm going to play this clip right now. This is what Shaq Lawson had to say to the guy after the game. He came right up to him. Here's that clip. Clearly, he's fired up about whatever Conor McGovern said about him. So that whole notion that players don't care about other people saying that there's not bulletin board material, that's clearly wrong. But anyway, that aside, two sacks on Sunday, very good game. He's starting to become a really good all-around player, not just good against a run. He's getting better against a pass rush, and he's a guy the Bills decided to not extend that fifth-year option to him last offseason, so he's going to be a free agent after this year. I feel like he's starting to play himself into a pretty good payday. How do you feel? I do think that Shaq is going to get paid. I think someone's going to look at him and, you know, decent to above average defensive ends in this league are in such a short supply that Shaq Lawson is going to get paid. I may get a lot of your listeners very upset when I say this next thing, but I do not anticipate that payday coming from the bills. Yeah. And Shaq is a good player and Shaq has clearly not, not he become the first round absolute colossal bust that a lot of people thought he was going to be. He's clearly a step above bust first round player. Maybe he's not the 14 sack a year guy we were hoping he was going to be, but those people are fairly rare and he's become a good solid player. In addition, I appreciate the fact that he waited until after the game to trash talk Connor McGovern. Now, to be fair, he probably didn't actually wait till after the game because we know that Shaq likes to talk. Oh, yeah. So he probably said a thing or two during the game. But whatever has to get him motivated is great. We knew when we didn't extend him the fifth-year option that we were going to get the most motivated Shaq Lawson we've ever gotten. And I'm not surprised to see him having a career year. It makes sense that he would. If he ends up with seven or eight sacks, someone is going to look at him in free agency and go, this is the beginning of a really strong pass rusher. 
let's give him a lot of money. I don't anticipate that the Bills will value him the same way that he will be valued by a pass rush starved team on the open market. I agree with that. And especially because, I mean, they got Hughes locked for now and they could just let Trent Murphy ride out another year and maybe they go out and draft somebody third, fourth round and work on developing him. And they got a lot of guys to resign. So I could definitely see him just like I could see Jordan Phillips going elsewhere to get a payday, which I think we're both agreeing with their deserve. We just both think that it's necessarily not going to be with Buffalo. A couple other guys I wanted to mention, I could spend a lot of time on them. I just wanted to point out Matt Milano. I really enjoy watching this kid play when he's healthy and he's right. He's all over the place making plays. I love watching him. A guy that I think I might've been wrong about was Star Lodale. I was begging the Bills to cut him a couple weeks ago. I'm not going to lie about it. I was sitting there. I was like, this is the worst player on the team. He might be the worst player on the roster. He's doing nothing. Joe Biscaglia from The Athletic has constantly stood up for the guy and saying, you know what? He's playing a lot better than most fans think he is. Now he's got a sack, not one, but two straight games. So he's getting it done with the pass rush and he's doing a better job of defending the run. So I'm going to admit right here on this podcast, I think I was wrong about that guy. And then last but not least, the guy that I wanted to touch on was Ed Oliver. He's now got a sack in consecutive games. He's up to three in the year now. Stupid penalty he had. I mean, that was just an inexcusable penalty that could have cost him points. But this overall may have been his best game. And it wasn't long ago where he was lucky to be playing maybe, I don't know, 30 to 32% of the stats because Jordan Phillips has been so good. But Ed Oliver came on real slow, but now he's starting to he's starting to play better and you're starting to see the guy, I think anyway, that the Bills invested a top 10 pick in. Are you liking what you're seeing from him right now? I am. And to be fair, I was liking what I saw from him a couple weeks ago, just because he wasn't showing up on the box score with a bunch of splashy sacks. Right. Doesn't mean he wasn't playing really well. And I feel like I kind of fell on the sword a couple weeks ago when I said flat out that, you know, Ed Oliver, if you're telling me that Ed Oliver sucks, I'm just going to assume that you're not actually watching. And I know that's a very strong way of putting that, but I had watched back some of the Browns film and I said, this guy is doing the things that we, we brought him here to do. It's just not ending in sacks. Just because you don't have a good result doesn't mean you have a good process and you can get a good result without having a good process. I'll give you a great example. Last week, Ed Oliver had a sack. It was completely unblocked. He just literally got up out of a stance and was like, is this a trap play? What's going on? There's no one blocking me. And he got the quarterback. Okay. Does that mean it was a good play for Ed Oliver? No, he didn't do anything. So Shaq Lawson got two unblocked sacks this week. Does just because something ends positively doesn't mean it had a good process. And just because it ends negatively doesn't mean it didn't have a good process. So when I watch Ed Oliver and you watch the things that he does, you think, okay, he shows the explosion. He shows the power. There are t- His technique gets the worst of him, and you would expect that to be true. He plays a notoriously long-developing position. Defensive tackle is not a position historically where you come in and you light the world on fire right away. You know, Kyle Williams wasn't Kyle Williams till year three. People forget about it. And I guess he was, a, you know, well, you know, he's he was a fifth round pick, not a first round pick. Yeah, but if Ed Oliver ends up being Kyle Williams, I think we're all going to be fine with that. Sure. And you know, not everybody's Aaron Donald. And that's okay. And not everybody's in Dominican Sue. And that's okay, too. Ed Oliver came from 
the American Athletic Conference Houston as an underclassman playing out of position on a notoriously long developing position undersized with technique problems. I don't know how many other excuses I can give you as to why it would take him a minute to get up to speed. If those don't convince you, you don't want to be convinced. And so Ed Oliver, unsurprisingly, is starting to show some of that stuff here at the back half of this first season. I'm happy for the guy. I was thrilled when we drafted him. I was thrilled two weeks ago when everyone was screaming at him. And I'm convinced that his development is one of the reasons why we might not see Jordan Phillips back in Buffalo next year. Yeah, I agree with that. Look, at the end of the day, they had to win this game. I consider this a must win. The Miami game before that, those are two games that I feel like the Bills really needed to have to their credit. Again, I keep saying it over and over because it's true. They went out and they did what they were supposed to do. A lot of people around the league want to bash the Bills because they haven't beaten anyone. Well, it's not their fault. They don't get, they don't get to schedule who they want to schedule. They play the team that's in front of them. They're winning the games they're supposed to. Now they're up to eight wins. If you want to give them the Jets game, and I'm not going to just give it to them, but they're at home week 17 at home against the Jets. They win that game. That's nine. They got to find one more if they want to get to 10. I think nine and seven, you have a decent chance to still make the playoffs, but 10 and six is going to get it done for sure. But you got at Dallas starting on this Thursday. That's going to be a tough game. They're at home against Baltimore. That's a tough game. They're on the road against Pittsburgh. I don't care who the quarterback is or what their record is. That's never an easy game. Not to mention they are very much in the AFC wildcard playoff race. So at least as of right now, they got plenty to play for. Then of course you got at New England in week 16. Those are four games where the Bills are probably going to be underdogs in all of them. And again, somehow, some way, if you do the math and it's pretty simple, even if you give yourself the Jets game, you want to get to 10, you got to find a way to beat one of those teams. Which of those games, when you look at it, do you say, this is the game where I like it the most. I think for me, it probably comes down to Baltimore as good as they are because it's a home game and you got your home crowd and it's a couple weeks later. Maybe the weather could be a factor. And then, of course, at Pittsburgh, just because the quarterback's not nearly as good as the other guys you're going to be facing. What do you think? I think Pittsburgh's the most winnable game there. And I think it primarily resolves around the fact that Mason Rudolph is an absolute tire fire. And um, if Devlin Hodges is still the guy by then, if Duck Hodges, as he is affectionately known uh, in Pittsburgh, if that's the guy, I feel like we can handle him the way we handled Brandon Allen. I think that's the toughest game, not the toughest game. I think that's the most important game left on this schedule because you're going to A, you're going to beat Pittsburgh in any tiebreaker, probably knock him out of the playoffs, and it's a conference win too. So I feel like that game is possibly, when you consider the stakes, might be the most important one. Now I got the other teams. All right, so there's four teams at six and five right now. You got Indy, the Raiders, Pittsburgh, Tennessee, and Cleveland is five and six, but they're not done because they could still win out. The Bills are two games clear of all of them in the playoff spot. I'm not going to run down the full schedule from each team, but I just did want to point out, Indy at six wins. They still got to play at New Orleans, so that could be their sixth loss. And then they got a couple of road games at Tampa, Jacksonville, Tennessee at home. Indy and Tennessee are playing each other this coming week, so one of them are automatically going to get to six uh, losses. The Raiders still got to play at Kansas City. They got to play at the Chargers. They got to play at Denver. So they, also got, they got some tough games. Pittsburgh, of course, plays the Bills, and they got to play at Baltimore, so I could easily see them losing six to seven games. And I already mentioned Tennessee playing at Indy. They also got to play at New Orleans as well. The path, while it's anything but a given, I'm not ready to even come close to anointing the Bills as a playoff lock right now. But when you read those schedules and those teams that are in it, 
the path is really there. This is there for the Bills to take. There's no question about it. It is. If we don't stumble, if we get the games that we should win, which are Pittsburgh and the Jets, if we get both those games, we're in. If we, the problem that we have is that those are the last two. And so the issue that we have there is that we don't have a chance to make up for any stumblings. Right. <laughs> because if we stumble against the Jets week 17, if we go into week 17, nine and six, and we need to beat the Jets in order to get in the playoffs, that's that's we've that sounds familiar to Bills fans. We've seen this story before. Oh yeah. With 2007, no, 2004. Uh, what was the Bledsoe year with where we all had to beat Pittsburgh. the Pittsburgh Steelers the backups third stringers, right? Yeah, Will, yeah. It was a Willie Parker game. Yep. I don't remember what year that was. Me neither, but I remember the game. I'll never forget the game. It was so frustrating, but yeah. I apparently blocked it from my memory because it was so painful. <laughs> but that that's a problem because, you know, first off, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but the Jets seem to have found their way a little bit this year. Certainly Sunday, yeah. That's not very encouraging to me. Um, I need another, maybe another bout of mono to go hit that hit that team and go through that locker room. And it's one of those scenarios where we, if we can steal one from Dallas, New England, Baltimore, that allows us to be able to stumble potentially against Pittsburgh and New York Jets and still get to ten and six. If we lose to Dallas, Baltimore, New England, now you're looking at you absolutely cannot stumble. You have to win both those games, Pittsburgh and the Jets. And you there is no margin for error at that point. You have to win those games. So if we take one from Dallas this Thursday, I'm going to start feeling really, really good about the Bills because I'm thinking they're going, I've got Baltimore, New England, Pittsburgh, the Jets, and all I got to do is win one of them? I could do that. So this game against Dallas, I think, has an opportunity to make me feel a lot better or a lot worse. I'm going to tell you this right now, Bruce. If we beat Dallas on Thursday, I'm going to start looking into a trip to Houston in week 18. A little bit of travel plans because if we beat Dallas, we're going to the playoffs. That's that's a, I don't guarantee a lot of shit, but that is one thing that I'm going to guarantee. Before we get out of here, and this is not related to the current Bills anyway, the NFL has been doing its 100 um, all-time team, and the series started on Friday with running backs, and 12 running backs ended up making the team. And I have a big problem with this list. I thought Thurman Thomas deserved to be on it, but I wasn't willing to die by that hill because when I did my list, my own personal list, I was like, okay, I think he might be on. I, first of all, we didn't know that there was going to be 12. I assumed that there was going to be 10. And I had him right around as high as eight, as low as maybe 11 or so on that list of running backs, the all-time greats. For him, for him to not be on when some of these other people got on, it just blows my mind. And it really legitimately made me mad, which it shouldn't, but it did. I'm going to just real quickly here, run them down. The first six are absolute locks. I got no problem with them. Jim Brown, Barry Sanders, OJ, Walter Payton, Emmett Smith, Eric Dickerson. There's six. No questions about any of them at all. And then I had another list of so-so guys. Earl Campbell certainly can make a case. Lenny Moore. I know he's an old guy and not a lot of people know a lot about him, but he had a nice career. He could be on that list. 
And then after that, though, right, so that's up to about eight or so. Then I'm like, seriously, when I looked at this, like Gale Sayers is one of those guys that we all know him because he was such a special athlete. But the dude only had five years in the league before, before injuries derailed him. He only had two years of 1,000 yards. He's not one of the best 12 running backs of all time. I'm sorry. Then you got Dutch Clark. Don't even get me started. Steven Van Buren. I get it that they need to have some old guys on this list, but don't do it at the expense of all-time legends. Marion Motley, I don't think he should have been on the list. These guys all make it. Meanwhile, not only Thurman Thomas doesn't make it, but LaDainian Tomlinson and Marshall Falk, none of them three are on the list of a top 12 all-time best running backs for this team. Is that borderline ridiculous to you? A, that Thurman's not on it, and even more so perhaps that LT or Marshall Falk, neither of them are on it either. I think it's interesting that the three snubs that you just brought up were Thurman Thomas, LaDainian Tomlinson, and Marshall Falk. And I think that the reason why that's interesting is if you look chronologically and you go Thurman, Marshall, LT, in that order chronologically, they're very similar players. Sure. They were both. They were all players who started to kind of expand on the idea that running backs could be used as a weapon in the passing game. Sure. And it, they didn't originate that idea. Like Thurman was not the original all-purpose back. I heard a lot of people talking about that. You know, he was a pioneer. And I'm like, eh, you know, Marcus Allen, Keith Byers. No, he was not a pioneer. Thurman Thomas was not the first time that someone thought, goodness gracious, I have a great idea. Why don't we throw it to the running back? Like that was not a unique concept, but it was part of the evolution. Having him split out wide and then transitioning that into Marshall Falk being the all-purpose back that he was and LaDainian Tomlinson and things like that. Those players helped evolve the running back position to the next level. So for me, you got to pick one of them. Like, you can't have all three of them be left out. Now, if you want to give it to to Thurman because he occurred first, that's fine. If you like to give it to Marshall Falk because you think that he was the was the uh, kind of the breaking point for the greatest show on turf, that's fine. If you like to give it to Dana, that's fine. But none of them? Yeah. You're telling me none of the three of those people I just mentioned who were integral into from transitioning running backs from the – Let's hand the ball off in an I formation and throw up the, you know, run them up the gut for four yards in a cloud of dust to, hey, these are versatile athletes. Let's use them in a versatile way, get them out of the backfield and use them on linebackers in space. And then that in turn caused defenses to start going with smaller linebackers. And that, that really started this whole offensive evolution that we see now. None of them? I, I have a hard time with that. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it felt to me like, like um, baseball Hall of Fame voters, where they have their own personal agenda, where no matter how good you are, you're never going to be a unanimous choice. Mariano Rivera finally bucked that trend a couple of years ago. But before that, you're going to tell me there's someone out there who says Greg Maddox and his first ballot didn't deserve to be a Hall of Famer. That's just stupid. And I feel like these people came in with an agenda saying, we're going to make sure we have X amount of guys from this era on, even if they're not as good or if it comes at the expense of more modern players. And I, I don't know. I just hate that stuff. Last thing here, then I'm going to let you go. This ain't got nothing to do with sports at all. You're on Twitter regularly. So am I. Something that went kind of viral over the last couple of days was somebody, uh, John Becker, I don't know who that is, but I know that his tweet was all over the place, at least on my timeline. It said, please quote tweet this with your most controversial food opinion. I love controversial food opinions. I kind of got a beating for this, but mine was blue cheese sucks just as much as ranch dressing when it comes to chicken wings. 
people did not like that at all. It is what it is. That was my take. What's yours, man? Give me, let's end this with you having Bruce Nolan, a controversial food opinion. Okay, so I am hashtag let people like things, right? I don't really have strong negative opinions toward other people's food tastes. I made a comment that when I was young, my father used to eat grape nuts with ranch dressing. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of weird, right? Yeah, but, you know, hey, you, you, you know, hey, listen, if you're not hurting anybody and it makes you happy, you know, have at it. My particular seasonally relevant food take is that Thanksgiving sucks. Ooh. And the turkey is the only good part. Green bean casserole is garbage. Mashed potatoes are overrated. Cranberry sauce is a joke. And Thanksgiving food in general can be summed up to just turkey, gravy, rolls, and maybe some corn casserole on the side, and I'd be good. That's my controversial food opinion. Oh, my God. Dude, I swear on my children, I did not know you were going to say that until you just said that. That is quite literally me and you have something in common now. Because not only is that my take, that's my lifestyle. I get together, my family on Thanksgiving, and any one of them will tell you, in fact, they hate it, but now they're used to it. 20 years I've been with my wife now, so she knows what's coming. Every day on Thanksgiving, there's all these things being passed around. I swear to you, bro, I have a bunch of turkey on a plate with gravy, about, I don't know, a dozen biscuits, because that's all I eat. Turkey, gravy, biscuits. I don't even mess around with corn. Back in the day when I was still trying to be, like, impressed by my wife's family, I would grab, like, one spoonful of mashed potatoes and I'd put them on the plate and I would kind of make a little dent in them. I didn't even eat them. I was just making it look like that I had something else on my plate. So I wasn't embarrassed to only have turkey. But not only is that like your take, not only is that my take too, that's like literally what I do on Thanksgiving. That's crazy. Give me the meat and then stay the heck out of my way. <laughs> that's all I need to do. And there's always that one guy. There's always that one guy after you're done and you're like, Oh man, I'm so tired. I could just get a nap. There's always that one smart Alec who chimes in and goes, it's the tryptophan and the turkey. <laughs> no, you moron. It's the carbohydrates. Gosh, <laughs> take a chemistry class. It's not the tryptophan. Do you have any idea how much turkey you would have to consume to have enough tryptophan to actually make you drowsy? <laughs> it's ridiculous numbers. Somebody always thinks he's super smart. That guy's my controversial food opinion. That guy needs to shut up. <laughs> uh, I, I can't go on any further today. That, that's the perfect way to end this. Everyone, follow Bruce on Twitter, at Bruce Exclusive. Check out the Nick and Nolan Show every Wednesday. At least every Wednesday during Bill season, that's for sure. Available everywhere podcasts are heard. Again, it's a really good show. Must listen for Bill's fans. This was a lot of fun, man. Thanks. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me, Pat. All right, everyone. That is going to do it for today. Very big thank you again, Bruce Nolan, the Nick and Nolan show Wednesday mornings. It drops every week. Make sure you go check it out. Part of the Buffalo Rumleys network available pretty much anywhere. Podcasts are found. Speaking of podcasts, make sure you subscribe to this one. Rate and review. All that fun stuff really helps me continue to grow the show a lot. Also go hit up the Moran Analytics podcast YouTube channel. I put up highlight clips from this podcast on there. Tons of original audio content as well. Stuff that you'll only find on that YouTube channel. Not going to hear it on the podcast or anywhere else. Then last but not least, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Pamoran Tweets. Constantly tweeting out podcast updates, upcoming guests, polls, prize pack giveaways, thoughts, arguing with fans, all kinds of stuff going on there. Again, at Pamoran Tweets. 
Thanks again for listening to the show. I say it all the time. I really mean it. I appreciate each and every single one of you that take any time from your day, your car, your office, your home, the gym, wherever you may be. If you're listening to this show, it means the world to me. I'm very, very grateful for that. Have a good week. Have a good Thanksgiving. Bills play. Hopefully on Friday's show, we'll have something positive to talk about. Talk to you soon. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.